Hello and welcome to the Europeans, your weekly dose of the European elixir. Oh, don't like the sound of that. That sounds like medicine. Well, yeah, an elixir is a medicine, but it's a medicine that's going to heal you and soothe you. And that's what we're going to do with this podcast, right? Okay, sure. <laughs> you don't sound convinced. I'm not, but I'm looking forward to being convinced in the next half hour or so, Dominic. I just thought it was good to open the show with like a slightly different tone instead of just talking about the weather again. Well, we are British by birth, both of us. So talking about the weather is what we do best. But actually, so you know how I am the mother of a small French person these days? Yeah. I've been learning a lot of French children's songs because I grew up with the English ones, but I feel like my French child should know, obviously, all of the mm. actual French songs. And... The French ones have turned out to be really, really dark. Oh. So like my favourite one has got this very happy tune, but it's about the outbreak of a war between crocodiles and elephants. And so this crocodile is saying goodbye to his family because he has to go and fight and he might not see them again. It's very heart-wrenching. Oh, that's really sad. But it made me think about the English language kids' songs that I grew up with. And I realised that those are also quite dark. Well, exactly. Isn't like Ring a Ring of Roses about the plague? The plague, exactly. So I was wondering if this is a universal thing, like creepy children's songs. And I'm curious to know if it's the same in listeners' native languages. So let me know. Drop us an email with the most disturbing children's song in your mother tongue. Hello at europeanspodcast.com. Can't wait to dive into that one. <laughs> me neither. Um, anyway, Dominic, we're doing something pretty radical on the show this week, aren't we? We are. This week we had a really interesting conversation with the journalist Sofia Sanchez Manzanaro about the farmer protests that are happening all across this continent of ours. The conversation went on a bit longer than we expected, but everything she said was so interesting and we felt it was just very important that everything should be heard. And for that reason, we've decided to play a slightly longer version of the interview in place of good week, bad week. But before you switch Whoa. off, we will be bringing you cultural recommendations in the isolation station afterwards. And I will promise to close the show off with a lovely, happy ending. So only a small tweak to our normal format, I promise. I think this is the first episode with no good week, bad week for like five years or something. Crazy times. Well, apart from all those episodes about oat milk that we made. <laughs> yeah, we did do that. But yeah, we wanted to spend the first part of the show diving into this topic for a little bit longer than usual, because it does feel like a really big story right now, one that we want to understand a bit better. And these protests are happening really across a huge stretch of Europe. I mean, here in France, there are farmers blocking motorways and even dumping piles of manure outside government buildings. A similar thing is happening in Romania and Germany. Uh, in recent weeks, we've also seen Polish and Bulgarian farmers blocking the border with Ukraine. And over there in the Netherlands, where you are, it really feels like farmer protests have been making big headlines for, well, I mean, like really a couple of years already, right? Yeah, I have to say it feels a bit like deja vu here because the farmer protest movement started in the Netherlands back in 2019. That began in opposition to a requirement for some farmers to reduce livestock due to the illegally high levels of nitrogen we have in the Netherlands. Mm. And boy, have we seen how farmer movements can affect politics in a country over here. Um, in the elections from which representatives are chosen for the Dutch Senate in 2023, the Populist Farmers Party actually came top of those elections. They became the biggest party uh, and wow. they have the most senators in the first chamber here. 
So I really wonder how this farmers' movement is going to affect other elections that are taking place in Europe this year, especially the elections taking place for the European Parliament in June. Yeah, it's funny. I remember starting to see these headlines from the Netherlands saying that farmers were angry about nitrogen. And at the beginning, it seemed really random. And then the same thing happened not that long afterwards in Ireland. And then it really started to feel like this clash between the policies that are intended to protect the climate and the people on the ground who grow our food. Like this clash is becoming a huge theme of the times that we're living in. And there are loads of other strains to these protests that need untangling too. Like to what extent is this about EU policy rather than national policies? What does it have to do with the war in Ukraine? And as you say, like not just in the Netherlands, but in other places too, it really feels like populist and far-right parties are publicly aligning themselves with farmers' protests and farmers' interests and going after farmers' votes. What are we supposed to make of that? So yeah, we really wanted to find someone this week who could give us some of the nuance and generally help us zoom out across Europe and make sense of this whole thing. And it turns out that we knew the perfect person already. Friend of the show, Sofia Santos Madronaro. She is a Spanish journalist. She's based in Brussels, where she currently writes about agriculture and food and sustainability for S&P Global. She's also that rare Brussels person who's able to talk about their policy area like an actual human being. I hope our listeners in the mm. Brussels bubble won't mind me saying that. Uh, but yeah, it's a great conversation that you're about to hear. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Sophia. Hello. Thanks for joining us today to talk about this huge wave of farmer protests that's spreading rapidly across Europe right now. Yeah, it really feels like it's everywhere right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it has been at the top of the agricultural news agenda here in Brussels this week. I bet. I mean, I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you, looking at all of this from Brussels, is... Can all of these protests be seen as a, a kind of unified movement of European farmers with common problems? Or are there like very specific national contexts that are making all the protests different from each other? Um, I wouldn't go as far as unified because there are definitely national triggers to these protests, as in the case of Germany, the tax on, on agricultural diesel, a similar thing happened in France with agricultural fuels. Um, then Eastern European countries are facing issues related to Ukraine. But of course, there is a shared dissatisfaction among farmers that can be easily traced back to Brussels and the EU policies that are being discussed here when it comes to agriculture, but also trade and sustainability, which have a huge impact on, on this sector. We'll come back to that in a second. But I first wanted to ask you about Ukraine. Could you give us a bit of the context around how the war in Ukraine has been affecting farmers, particularly in Eastern Europe? Yeah, so basically Ukraine, as we know, is a very important producer and exporter of agricultural products, particularly cereals and oil seeds. And when the war started, the traditional route for Ukraine to export these products, which is the Black Sea, was blocked. It meant that they needed to find an alternative route and they used it up the so-called solidarity lanes. So the solidarity lanes are basically the road, railway and inland waterway connections uh, between Ukraine and bordering member states to be able to continue exports of agricultural products. Um, however, this meant that now all agricultural trade goes through member states and it means Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria, etc., Romania are not very happy about this because they themselves, they are producers of grains and cereals. And Ukrainian grain is way cheaper 
So it meant that there was uh, a lot of speculation and it entered the market. They blamed this grain for depressing prices for farmers. The European Union tried to limit last May until September these imports. They limited during some months and then they had to phase out their restrictions because it's really strange to impose trade restrictions on a country that you're supporting in a war. So then this led to the member states, so Poland, uh, Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania, etc., to impose their own restrictions on trade, which are illegal according to EU law. Mm. The problem of Ukrainian imports is also starting to impact other member states. For example, French producers and many other Western European producers of poultry meat and eggs are not happy that there are no limits to how much uh, poultry and eggs can enter now the EU um, because the pre-war quotas have been suspended temporarily. So, yeah, it seems like this is spreading. I mean, all across Europe, when you listen to interviews with farmers, they really say that they're struggling to make ends meet, like pretty much everywhere. And yet when you look at the EU budget, like a huge amount of it is spent on agricultural subsidies, right? Like how is it possible that we're spending all of this money on farming and that the individual farmers are struggling so much? Well, uh, yes, as you say, uh, a huge chunk of the EU budget goes to the CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy, which rules farming in Europe. And is uh, it was a very important policy years ago. Years ago, it represented pretty much half of the budget of the EU. Now it's around 30%. However, there are a lot of inequalities in how this budget is distributed. It's a very complicated policy, and that's another complaint from farmers. It's very bureaucratic, but also it is based on area, the area of the farm. So bigger farms get more money, farms of you know, crops, but also livestock. Uh, this definitely doesn't benefit small and medium-sized producers. Um, we can see that a big part of CAP payments goes to very big farms. There have been efforts from the EU to make the CAP more fair in the last reform. I mean, they also have to pay high input costs, so basically very high energy costs because of the war in Ukraine again, Mm -hmm. very high fertilizer prices when the war in Ukraine started. This just doesn't reflect in the price they they get for their products later. They also blame, you know, uh, supermarkets for selling products with very high prices, um, then they don't see these benefits. And of course, they are fighting climate change as well. And uh, in Europe, um, even in Hungary, drought made the maize production drop. It's not even a, a Southern European thing anymore. Climate change is affecting pretty much every member state through flooding, drought. So it's not that straightforward that CAP payments are just a magical solution to all the, the problems faced by agriculture. I think this distinction between the small, medium and the large farmers is really interesting because I saw a report recently in the Netherlands where I live that about one fifth of Dutch farmers are millionaires. And I was quite surprised because people often think of all farmers as small, independent businesses. I imagine it's different in different parts of the continent. Are there any particular parts of the continent where there are still mainly small farmers and that are therefore particularly badly affected by this discrepancy in the European policy system? To put things into context, actually, the average EU farm is 17 hectares, which is not big compared to the US, for instance, is 180 hectares. Where I come from, Valencia, it has one of the smallest uh, size in farms in average, is 5.9 
and other parts of Spain, uh, like Castilla y León, is 63 hectares. So yeah, from five to 63, uh, huge. It's just how traditionally this kind of crops were cultivated. In the case of Valencia, is oranges, mandarins, etc. So citrus. It means, of course, that it has a big impact on payments, but also it's not the same to face hardship as a very big agro-industrial company, enterprise, business, than as a very small producer. In Valencia, for example, there's a lot of part-time agriculture. People have other jobs and their agriculture producers part-time. And also the payments, they differ a lot from country to country. Eastern European countries have been complaining for a long time that since they entered the EU, they were promised that their CAP payments will be increased. But this hasn't happened yet, really. Um, and this makes that uh, farmers abandon the land in Valencia, where I'm from. It happens a lot. We set a record this year in abandoned agriculture mm. land. So, of course, if a business was that lucrative, this wouldn't happen. So there are these imbalances in the common agricultural policy in the background. And there is also this backdrop of a lot of farmers across Europe finding that their operations are coming up against policies that are intended to protect the environment. So things like limits on nitrogen, banning of pesticides, cuts to their diesel subsidies. How much of this kind of policy, this kind of environmental policy that's impacting farming, is coming from the EU? So basically, there was the European Union launched the Green Deal, so this big plan to make the continent climate neutral. And inside of the Green Deal, it was the farm to work strategy, which is basically the environmental plans, but for agriculture and food production. There were, as you say, for example, uh, targets to reduce pesticide use by 50% in Europe, chemical pesticides, uh, among other targets like to increase land under organic farming to 25%, etc. But at the end, the legislation that was meant to be implemented to achieve those objectives, particularly the pesticides one, has not been adopted. And it's very unlikely that it's going to come into force uh, before the end of the European Commission mandate, which is in June. Since the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have seen a shift in the European Commission ambitions regarding agriculture. All this farm-to-fork agenda that was pushed so hard at the end of the mandate, well, these ambitions have been fading out. And now it seems like the big legislation, like the pesticide cuts, even the nature restoration law, which was a, a law to restore the EU's degraded ecosystems. And this involved farmers, you know, leaving some farmland without being cultivated to be able to uh, bring back biodiversity, etc. This has been very watered down at the end. The legislation will be approved and there has been a political agreement, but it's not as ambitious. So I think it's unfair to say that the EU has imposed that many new rules when it comes to the environment. They have tried to, but they haven't succeeded in all of them, in most of them, really. It's true that the new common agricultural policy has some more environmental components, but uh, most of them are also voluntary. So, yeah, it, it is unfair to say that. And I think there's a disconnection as well in what farmers perceive, you know, what they hear, all the... The, the noise regarding some policies that some political parties make as well, uh, what is actually implemented. It's true that they still face a lot of red tape and bureaucracy, um, that the environmental measures have increased in the CIP and that member states also impose their own environmental measures. But the Green Deal hasn't accomplished that much when it comes to agriculture. 
I imagine it's very complicated to design policies to protect nature that also work with farmers and helping them continue their work. But does that always have to be in conflict? Are there any examples of where these policies have managed to align, where farmers have had their interests protected whilst the nature is also being protected? Well, for instance, President von der Leyen says that this doesn't have to be the case. Um, that's why she launched a strategic dialogue between agricultural stakeholders to try to depolarize this debate between green farming and traditional farming, which doesn't have to be the case. Uh, they are, as I say, the first affected by the climate crisis, by the biodiversity crisis. So it's in their big interest to preserve soil and land. And I am sure most farmers are aware of this, that they need to preserve the fertility of their soil for their own survival. I guess an example could be the important increase in organic farming in Europe. There is this 25% target that the European Union wants to achieve to have 25% of farmland in Europe under organic farming, which means using no chemical pesticides, so products that are approved for organic production. This has been a success. It is increasing. Um, there are no policies in place that force farmers to do so, but most farmers are seeing a very interesting market niche to sell organic products. People are more and more aware of the damage that pesticides can cause to human health, and more and more pesticides are being banned. So I think organic farming is, is quite interesting. It's definitely a business model of, of its own, and organic farmers are also suffering from some of the problems that traditional farmers suffer from. They have also joined some protests in Germany, I believe. So it's not that they're necessarily all of them against environmental protection, but uh, they definitely feel like they have not been valued for what they bring to society. That, I guess, is, is key. It's interesting you say that about farmers being the first people to notice environmental degradation and, and for it being really important for them, because that it's surprised me to see how much the farmers' issue has been co-opted by far-right populists who are often or almost always people who deny that uh, there needs to be any environmental regulation. Isn't there quite a serious potential downside for the farmers if they allow extremist far-right politicians to co-opt their cause? Yeah, I mean, of course, they will also lose some of the public support. In general, the farmer protests have been supported by large parts of the population in, in the countries where they're taking place uh, in Germany. But then if we look at the electoral success of this new farmers party in the Netherlands in the previous elections, definitely people that were not farmers voted for them. So, I mean, if they start to align with far-right narratives, uh, it's going to be difficult for them. I think some segments are trying to distance themselves from this, from this populism and, and this use of their problems for political gains. But it's true that also some big farming unions in Europe are closely aligned with traditional political parties. I will say this is mostly the case for the European People's Party that wants to become the Farmers' Party in the next election. And von der Leyen has under, understands that, and that's why she kicked off the strategic dialogue right now. It is a way of trying to attract the rural vote to traditional conservatives. Something that you mentioned when we were chatting earlier, Sophia, which I found super interesting, is the fact that quite a lot of MEPs themselves are farmers. I'm just curious, like, how does that affect 
policy making around farming in the EU? I mean, it must be pretty personal for them. Yeah, it is very interesting when you go to the European Parliament, to the Agricultural Committee. Indeed, many of them are farmers from all political parties, I will say, from the Greens. There are many organic farmers, but also from the right wing parties. It doesn't happen that you talk to politicians that are also doing the job themselves that they are talking about. I don't know, if you go to the health committee, I don't think all of them are doctors. So it is rare, of course, in politics to see that. So yeah, debates are usually very emotional. Some people suggest that there could be a conflict of interest as well because they are also recipients of CAP funds. Mm. But yeah, it is a very particular policy area, I will say. And I think that's why it's treated in this very special way by the European Union, allocating so much of its budget to it. At the end, it's a policy to feed us. The European Union is also, well, the largest exporter of food in the world. So to maintain that, that very important production, uh, subsidies and political will are necessary. The thing is, I think farmers are getting this contradicting message when they have told them all their lives that you need to produce, 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 and use a lot of fertilizers and pesticides to do so, because after the, the wars in Europe, we needed to ensure self-sufficiency. But not anymore. We have enough food. And uh, it's true, we export a lot, but they didn't understand how now to continue producing a lot without using that much uh, pesticides and fertilizers, etc. So yeah, it's really conflicting. And for old farmers that have been doing this their whole life, probably doesn't make a lot of sense for them what's happening now. To round up, I wanted to ask you before you went, if there's one thing you could change about EU farming policy, what would it be? Mm, I think I will definitely align EU farming policy with EU environmental policy. And that when we draft a new common agricultural policy, we do it at the same time as we think about the EU's environmental ambitions, because it doesn't make sense to do this thing separately. And again, it will lead to conflicting views on agriculture. And it's just not going to be good for the environment, nor for farmers. Something I think is really interesting at the moment when you zoom out and look at these protests across Europe and how political parties are responding to them is that left-wing parties have been so much worse at responding to it, which I guess kind of makes sense because it is so much easier for right-wing and far-right parties to paint themselves as like defenders of rural traditional life. And also left-wing parties have obviously been a lot more vocal on the need for big policy changes to fight climate change. But, you know, left-wing parties are also supposed to be a voice for the poorest in our society. And it feels like they really need to get their act together and start campaigning for these votes, you know, and saying, like, we do hear you and we do represent you. Because if they don't, aren't they basically saying, like, you know what, we do just represent people in cities who ride bikes and don't understand where their food comes from, which doesn't seem good to me. Yeah, I agree with what you say. Although I think it's good to remember that not all farmers are necessarily the poorest in society even though many of them are clearly struggling. Yeah, it was really good to get an idea from Sophia of just how much variation there is in terms of like the size of the businesses that are involved in this system making our food. Yeah, it makes it very difficult to kind of unpack the whole dynamics when you group 
all these like these huge agricultural organizations that are dealing with millions and millions with like tiny local farmers and all their interests are bundled together in one political movement. Yeah, that's part of what makes it so complicated. So we are very grateful to have had someone to help us uh, decomplicate it a little bit this week. Thank you so much to Sophia for helping us dig into the farmers' protests. Sophia is actually just about to change jobs, so you will very soon be able to find her articles about food and agriculture policy on the excellent European news website, Euractiv. And she's generally a great person to follow on the internet if you are interested in these topics. Uh, you'll find a link to her Twitter profile in the show notes. Now time for a quick advert from some friends of ours across the pond. If someone told you to jump off a cliff, would you do it? No. But there is something to be said about leaping into the unknown. That's what our podcast, Outside In, is all about. It's a safer way to explore all the weird, wonderful, and uncomfortable questions you have about the natural world. Like, what's it like to decompose? All of the germs and bacteria is saying, okay, baby, we gotta get rid of this person. Or why the hell do we have lawns? Who the hell needs five acres of ornamental grass? I'm Nate Hedgie, host of Outside In, a podcast where curiosity and the natural world collide. Sometimes it's serious, sometimes it's ridiculous, but it's always a wild journey. That's outside slash in from New Hampshire Public Radio. We've been recording lots of these messages over the last couple of weeks for the very generous supporters of this podcast in the five bucks a month category. And these mini podcasts that we record as little individualized thank you messages, uh, they've been particularly weird and unhinged recently. I've just been in a hysterical <laughs> mood. I was actually crying with laughter in the last few. It was true. We had to stop because <laughs> Katie was just in tears. <laughs> So if you would like the chance to potentially hear me losing it completely, you might like to sign up for the five bucks a month tier of our Patreon page. But really, we are super grateful for any amounts, big and small, that you can spare to keep this little podcast of ours running. We are a proudly independent operation. There is no big media outlet paying our salaries. So we're very much on you guys, the listeners, to keep us in business. If you heard last week's episode, you will have heard that there was a weird glitch with the Patreon payments and some people's subscribers were cancelled automatically by the Patreon team. We were quite worried about this, uh, but we've been very touched to see how many of you have gone out of the way to restart your subscription. And just to be clear, it only happened to a portion of our supporters. So if you didn't receive an email from Patreon saying your support was cancelled, all should be well. Yay. Huge thanks go to our latest supporters, Bryce, Andrea, Eloise, Tomer, Rowena, Gregory, Thomas, Damien, Grieg, Helen, Fonts, and huge thanks also go to Karen, Nuno, and Liam for increasing their donations. Thank you all so much. Head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast if you have anything from two euros in whatever currency to help us out each month. It is time to head to the Inspiration Station. What have you been enjoying this week, Dominic? I've recently got back into listening to piano music whilst I'm working, particularly on 
this podcast uh, and I've been really enjoying the music of the Polish 19th century composer Frederick Chopin. That guy. I went through a phase of going to sleep with his nocturnes playing on a cassette tape player when I was a child. So I find them really soothing. And now I think about it, maybe it's a really bad idea to be working to the same music that I used to go to sleep to. But I actually think it's more appropriate as podcast working uh, background music because it's got some really nice soft parts, but then sudden dramatic moments, which I do remember waking me up when I was a child. Anyway, I'm uh, listening to the same recording I listened to as a child. It's all played by this Turkish pianist called Idil Biret. It's luscious, romantic music. I recommend it even if you don't think you like classical music. Music, give it a try. Lovely. It's funny how nostalgic the stuff that we listen to as kids to go to sleep is. Uh, one of my students was telling me that her parents are metalheads. Oh, yeah. So she just goes to sleep like listening to full on death metal. She finds it Whoa, super soothing. That's intense. <laughs> Powerful associations. I guess it's not so far away from the white noise that almost every baby I know goes to sleep to these days. Yeah, babies love the white noise. Sorry, metalheads. I should not be comparing <laughs> metal to white noise, should it's not I? Not noise, it's, it's music. Probably just lost a big chunk of our listenership. <laughs> What have you been enjoying, Katie? Well, I've got another Polish recommendation for you, along with Chopin. I am stealing my recommendation again this week, this time from producer Katz, and it is a podcast interview with the celebrated Polish novelist Olga Tokarczuk. We've definitely recommended at least one of her novels before, but this is an interview with the novelist herself. It is on the Paris Review podcast, and Kat says it is a lovely conversation about how we relate to other species and about Olga's feeling uncomfortable with the patriarchy and finding alternatives in feminism. It's also an interview that has a really strong sense of place. It's set where she lives. And uh, yeah, Kat says that it is an interview that feels intimate, like you're on a walk together and meandering through a conversation. Lovely recommendation. Thanks, Katz. Sounds lovely. I'm going to listen. You will find a link to that conversation with Olga Tokarczuk and a Spotify link to that old Chopin in the show notes. Lots of things to put in your ear after you finish with this podcast. <laughs> Just one of your ears. <laughs> in your ear. It's time for a happy ending. And before we dive into it, I have to first give a slightly unhappy caveat because otherwise I think I'd have a bad conscience and also probably listeners would start writing in. Mm -hmm. The caveat is the fact that we are not reducing our emissions quickly enough in Europe or anywhere in the world for that matter. And the transition away from fossil fuels needs to happen quicker, urgently. Great happy ending so far. <laughs> That said, there is happy news in this area. According to a report from the Centre for Research on Energy and Clean Air, the EU's fossil fuel CO2 emissions fell in 2023 to their lowest level in 60 years. Mm. Yes, 60 years. Between 2022 and 2023, we saw an 8% drop in these CO2 emissions from fossil fuels, the steepest year-on-year -year drop on record in these emissions, apart from the 2020 drop, which was due to some situations that I think people probably remember. Oh yeah, those ones. The analysts behind this study point out that this drop in emissions has happened despite growing economies, further proof that we do not need those fossil fuels to thrive. Not that we necessarily need growth either. Ooh, Ooh. controversial. 
on that in a future episode, maybe? Maybe. <laughs> Why was 2023 such a good year for dropping emissions? Did something in particular happen? Well, part of it was just favourable weather. So, yeah, we can be happy about that, but we can't really pat ourselves on the back about that. The thing we can pat ourselves on the back for is that more than half of the drop in emissions were due to cleaner electricity production. That's thanks to the continuous rise of wind and solar capacity, as well as a rebound in hydropower and nuclear. So, yay, some things are getting better. Remember the caveats from the beginning, but be happy for a bit, please. Do you know what? I think this is a good happy ending. There is so much climate doom and gloom. And uh, after last week's recycling interview, some people said like, but how do we fix it? We need more focus on how we fix things and also what is improving. So I'm glad to have this little dose of optimism, Dominic. Happy to serve it to you. Next week, we are heading in the opposite direction from this week. We're heading into the cities of Europe to talk about the disgusting state of the air that we are breathing in cities like this one, Paris, and your one, Amsterdam. Um, How can we fix this disgusting air? Join us next week when we'll be trying to figure that out. In the meantime, can I please request that people come and hang out with me on the newish social media platform threads? Yeah, I'm not going to, but sure. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) I don't need any more social media in my life. But this feels like the one that could actually replace Twitter, but it's not happening yet. I had lunch with a friend this weekend who was describing what it's like to be the first person arriving at the gay club at like 10pm. And that is how I feel right now. I am like standing awkwardly in the corner of threads, holding my drink. And it does feel like the party will get going eventually, but it's not quite happening yet. There's not quite enough people there to call it a party. I've been that person many times, by the way. (laughs) It's partly because I always get tired. So, (laughs) like, I'm just not designed to be someone who, like, starts the party at midnight and then carries on dancing until five. I want to go to be in bed by one at the latest. Well, apply that to threads, please. Come and join me with their At Europeans podcast. Podcast. Uh, we're also on Instagram under the same handle and we're still sort of desperately hanging on on Twitter. If you're also there, uh, we're there at Europeans Pod. This week's episode was produced by Katz Laszlo and Katie Lee and mixed and mastered by Wojciech Oleksiak. Thank you all for doing all that wonderful work. I appreciate you all a lot. We appreciate you too, Dominic. <laughs> Have a good week, everyone. Hasta pronto. 